The opinions expressed by the host and guests on Where Did the Road Go are their own and do not represent those of WVBR or its management. Our aim is to explore the fringe, lost civilizations, alternative science, the paranormal, and much more. Join us on the web at WhereDidTheRoadGo.com where you can send us questions for our live or future guests via email or the live chat room. And remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. And now welcome to this week's edition of Where Did The Road Go? And this week on the show from Sacred Geometry International, we have Randall Carlson. And uh, if you have any questions for Randall, go to our chat room at www.wheretotheroadgo.com, and I will pass them on as we talk. Um, yeah, and uh, links to Sacred Geometry International can be found there as well. Randall, are you with us? I'm there. I'm here, Zariah. <laughs> All right. And uh, can, you tell, can you tell us a little bit about Sacred Geometry International? Well, Sacred Geometry International was essentially established to make people aware of the the enormous amount of cutting-edge research that's being done into um, various arcane traditions of knowledge, uh, you know, and, and using Sacred Geometry kind of as the, the focus for the thing, the matrix from which to understand it, because that's been part of my background is is an interest comes stems from being a builder. Um, I got interested in geometry very early on in the uh, really in the early 70s and then I began again from the perspective of a builder I became very interested in how uh, ancient peoples around the world built things, the, the, the technologies they used, the design principles they used and that's kind of what led me initially into the study of geometry uh, both as a practical art that I could use uh, in my own building projects, but also uh, as a key to understanding some of the the motives of of the ancient builders, and then I you know quickly discovered that it was could be taken literally as a symbolic language, and um, my studies kind of went from there. I, I guess early on I was influenced by Buckminster Fuller, largely as a lot of people were uh, back in the '60s and the '70s. Um, built a couple of geodesic domes and had that experience um, in the early 70s. And just my, my studies sort of progressed through uh, meeting teachers like Keith Critchlow, uh, who was a, a British architect who um, was very instrumental in, um, in uh, teaching people about the principles of sacred geometry, um, reading the works of John Michel, um, Robert Lawler, um, some of the um, getting into the study of the Kabbalah and realizing that there was an important geometric component to that, then realizing that the uh, a lot of the esoteric traditions utilized geometry as a symbolic language, then realizing that um, language itself uh, had a geological underpinning to it that became one of the um, principal working methods of the Kabbalists, and that is translating words and names and phrases of sacred writings into numbers and then relating those numbers to each other uh, by geometrical proportions. So I started teaching the subject of sacred geometry in the 1980s, early 1980s, and have been doing it off and on ever since and carrying on my researches into that subject. I... Um, I've always had an interest and fascination in, in earth science and astronomy and quickly came to realize that many of the proportions, the sacred proportions that one finds embedded in 
architecture, the architecture of old, embody proportions that are found, of course, throughout the natural world um, and in the astronomical realm. And so one can find built into many of the sacred structures proportions that are um, derived from the study of astronomical relationships. And when I talk about astronomical relationships, I'm talking not only about spatial relationships, for example, the sizes and distances of the planets, but I'm also talking about temporal relationships uh, in the sense that of orbital periods and rotational periods and so on. And um, one of the things that led me in, I, I guess when I was um, made my first trip to Europe in 1988, I believe it was, and began to visit cathedrals in an attempt to decode some of the um, symbolism of the Gothic cathedrals, uh, one of the most prevalent images that I found was the um, reference references to the great year. Uh, and so I got interested in this concept of the ancient model of time, which essentially is cyclical as contrasted with our more modern uh, view of time, which is, is linear, that there was some starting point or some definite end point. But in the ancient models, it was cyclical. And the cycles unfolded according to a certain tempo, and this tempo was governed by the same proportions that one finds in the study of sacred geometry. Then, from there, uh, you could say it was led into the study of, of the geological evidence, because the geology, the, the rocks of the earth, actually carry the imprints of various of these cosmic changes. And as I learned more about that, I realized that the tempo that scientific models were presenting to us seemed to be governed governed again by the same ratios that was one one was finding uh, throughout these other uh, domains of, of information. So that led me into um, my current research, which is essentially looking at the temporal periodicities and the timing of the great global earth changes and have discovered there's a strong correlation between archaic models and modern scientific models, which I, strikes me as a fairly important thing to, for people to understand these days. And, and having communicated and talked to many, many geologists over the last 20 years or so, I've realized that not that many of them are aware of the fact that uh, there's this whole corpus of information that we've inherited from the ancient world that has direct relevance to our own uh, you know, quest to understand uh, whether there are, are the timing and tempo of the great changes. You see, when I came of age, the model uh, of, of Earth change was strictly uniform. Uh, even it was called uniformitarianism, and that was the model that prevailed for most of the 20th century. Now, if you go back to the uh, early days of Earth science, early 19th centuries, most of the early 19th century uh, Geologists, they, although they weren't really called geologists back then, but the the the, the natural philosophers and the, the researchers and so on, they for the most part looked at various evidence within the, the Earth itself and could, could, had concluded that there had been great catastrophes. Um, as the 19th century progressed, that idea fell out of favor and was replaced by what we could call Lyellian gradualism, which was named after Charles Lyell, who was one of the along with James Hutton and uh, James Playfair, who, who basically expounded this idea that all earth change uh, could be understood by reference to things we see going on today and to assume that there had been processes 
on a scale beyond what we have observed today was considered to be unscientific. And so we see that in the early days of geology, most of the, the founding fathers of geology were catastrophists who believed that, that Earth had been shaped through great catastrophes. As that fell out of favor and we come into the 20th century, we see that paradigm almost completely replaced by the uniformitarian or the gradualistic paradigm. And that more or less became the dominant um, belief system. And anybody who deviated from that was more or less branded a heretic or, you know, a, a somebody out on the fringe. However, what's happened, though, is particularly the last quarter of the 20th century, the evidence for catastrophes in Earth history became so overwhelming that, um, you know, we now see what I consider a resurgence of catastrophism or a new catastrophism. And what I'm trying to do with it is to show that, that those who are now recognizing that Earth has gone through two modes of change, the, the gradualistic change that has prevailed basically through historic times and through modern times, is frequently punctuated by catastrophic change, short-lived, concentrated, intense change, and that our awareness and understanding of, of that mode of change can be immeasurably enhanced by reference to much of the ancient writings and ancient traditions and so forth that have generally just been taken as, as pure myth, but now we realize that behind these myths there are uh, records of real events. Okay, wow. Um... So, <laughs> uh, so, so sacred geometry in itself is these numbers being recorded in in these buildings and these structures and stuff, and they're pretty consistent no matter where you go in the world, aren't they? Let's see, I lost you. Uh, that's a, okay. Um, the sacred geometry is, yes. is these numbers being embedded into these these buildings, into these structures and such. And uh, they're pretty consistent wherever you go in the world, aren't they? Yes. And these yes. are very yeah. ancient structures. We're not talking about stuff that was built recently. No, we're generally talking about structures that um, are ancient, although they come down as recently as, as the Middle Ages. Because we certainly find the symbolism embedded in um, the Gothic cathedrals and um, structures that were cons uh, built in Southeast Asia, such as Angkor Wat, which... Uh, embodies the cycles as they were basically expounded upon in the Vedas, in the Vedic tradition. So the, the, um, the, the proportions that one finds in the, the yugas, which are the, the term for the time cycles in the Vedas, are built into the, the dimensions of the, the ground plan of uh, Angkor Wat, as an example. Also Angkor Tom is another one nearby there that, that reflects these numbers. You can also find the same thing um, expressed in the last great wave of uh, architectural activity in Mesoamerica, pre-Columbia Mesoamerica, eleventh, uh, twelfth, thirteenth century. Why, why so, do you, go ahead. Go ahead. Why do you think these numbers were so important that they had to embed them in these structures? <clears throat> well, I, for two reasons. Number one, I think that the numbers themselves reflect a s fundamental proportions that seem to be germane throughout all of creation. So in order to understand creation and to try to reflect their, you know, their model of, of creation, which was basically uh, the work of a divine architect, if you will, um, the motive was to try to create structures that reflected this higher order as they perceived it and understood it. Secondly, like as in the case of the, um, 
the, the uh, Angkor Wat and the, the Vedic traditions of time. You know, all of these concepts, whether we're talking about the Mayans or the ancient Indo-Aryans or the megalithic builders uh, of the British Isles, you know, the ancient Egyptians, we find the same idea that you had uh, these great cycles and that the termination of these cycles were always involved catastrophic upheavals. And so I think that would be a very uh, pragmatic reason for attempting to... Um, as a warning. Yeah, as a warning, yes, exactly, exactly. Um, so I think there's, there's a dual reason, you know, both, both from the creative end of it, but also from the destructive end of it, because you have this kind of this dualism going on there um, in that um, our world as we inhabit it, manifest these, these relationships. Uh, we could call them these... They were referred to by one researcher um, uh, um, by the name of Jay Hambage back in the early 20th century as dynamic symmetry. And essentially these, these relationships that can be the square root of 2, the square root of 3, the square root of 5, the phi number or the golden number, several others, these were found ubiquitously throughout the natural order. They're also found prevalent throughout all of the ancient sacred architecture. It seems to be one of the criteria for defining what, what constitutes sacred architecture. Um, seems to be this, this presence, this ubiquitous presence of, of this geometry. But built into this, like when you, when you walk up to Chartres Cathedral, you walk into the, to, through the western portal there, it's called the Portal of Judgment. And you see an effigy of Christ in glory enclosed within the vesica. The vesica, uh, or the vesica piscis, is the, is the fundamental form of sacred geometry, or, or just Euclidean geometry in general, and it's the form out of which uh, all other form emerges. So it has this sort of this, this feminine symbolism to it, in that it could be construed as a womb, because out of this womb emerges all of the forms and patterns and figures of geometry. And it's also thought of it just as a womb, as a gateway between two, um, uh, between two domains or two realms. The vesica was considered to be a, a gateway between two realms. And so we have Christ in majesty seated in the vesica, which represents the, the gateway between two, two worlds. But surrounding that are the four creatures that we find um, you know, universally in some form or another, um, representing the four fixed signs of the zodiac. So you see, um, if you just Google Shark Cathedral Portal of Judgment, I'm sure you'll get images of this, and you'll see a bull, a lion, an eagle, and a man representing, um, or rather, it's, in this case, it's an angel. The bull being Taurus, the lion being Leo, the eagle representing Scorpio, because Aquila, the eagle, rises at the same time as, as the scorpion, and then the angel representing Aquarius. And, the, and what this actually represents is a, uh, at least in my opinion, uh, is that it is a, represents the four fixed signs or the four seasons, if you will, of the great year cycle, which is based on the processional motion of the Earth's axis. And it does seem like ancient peoples were very, very uh, keyed in on tracking this very, very subtle motion, which is, you could think of as the Earth's third motion. Its primary motion, obviously, is the rotation on its axis. The secondary motion is its yearly revolution about the sun. And these are obvious, you know, because all of us, our lives are basically governed by these cycles. Um, the day-night cycle, the yearly cycle. Uh, the yearly cycle may be less so now, but certainly agricultural people and for most people in the world up to, you know, the 20th century, 
their lives were heavily governed by the yearly cycle and the change of the seasons. Well, the idea I think here was that many of the, the, the ancient initiates were very much interested in the larger framework, the larger picture of things. And so, you know, all of the, these structures, you know, they have an astronomical component. There's a whole science that's emerged in the last oh, 30 or 40 years called archaeoastronomy, which is looking at the astronomy that's embedded in these structures. So they not only encode geometric relationships, they also encode astronomical relationships. And so you look at Stonehenge being the most salient example for you, you would look at Stonehenge and from the altar stone looking out through the Sarsons, the aperture of the Sarsen stone ring over the heel stone, you see that there's this alignment built in. And this alignment uh, is, marks the uh, midsummer solstice. And you see there are four points within the, the annual cycle, just you could think of it as analogous between the, the, the annual cycle and the daily cycle. Just as you have dawn, high noon, dusk, and midnight in the daily cycle, you have spring, summer, winter, and fall in the annual cycle. But then in the great year cycle, you also have four seasons. Now, the belief was, at least from my reading into uh, you know commentaries on myths and reading the myths themselves and so forth, is that uh, the belief was is that there would be within that great cycle there would be points of discontinuity, if you will. These points were like punctuation marks within the you know to, to borrow the. The, the phrase from Stephen Jay Gold, uh, the paleontologist who coined the phrase punctuated equilibrium to, de to describe the progression of life on Earth. Essentially, what he was doing was just giving a new name to an ancient concept that, that the normal pace of things is interrupted from time to time. Enormous changes happen within these windows, and then things settle out, and there's a new order of things, a new order of nature, a new order of the world, a new order of the ages, if you will. And in this model of the great year that's represented, I believe, on the portal of Sharp, you have the four fixed signs. If you go back and now you begin to reconstruct the global change based on purely scientific models with no reference whatsoever to archaic models, what you find is that there's a, a, an extraordinary correlation. Um, we can go back and we find that there's actually what was called the um, the Baling Alarod Younger Dryas transition, which is now dated at 12,900 years ago. And this is precisely half of a processional cycle ago. So if we go back and if we take the, the great cosmic hand, the hand of the cosmic clock, which is the, the, the equinoctial line, and back it up 12,900 years ago, the vernal equinox would be standing right on the cusp of Virgo Leo. And this is one of the key points within these archaic models. And now science has demonstrated that there was an extraordinary cataclysmic event that occurred pretty much right on that, on that line. And it was this that began this uh, basically 1,500 to 2,000 year uh, shift of the planet out of the grip of the Great Ice Age or Glacial Age into this interglacial age that we're in now. And very few people realize or have ever really thought about how extreme and how the full extent of the, the global changes that occurred through this transition uh, in, in the age of Leo, which would have essentially lasted from about 10,800 to about 13,000 years ago. But prior to this transition, you know, we had an ice cap bigger than the one that now covers the South Pole, and it reached from the Atlantic to the Pacific and from the northern United States up to the Arctic Circle and may have been up to two miles thick. So the entire region where you are now 
um, where you are in Ithaca was actually still under the ice sheet. You were near the southern margin of the ice sheet, but you were still under an ice sheet. South of where you were now for a belt reaching across most of Ohio would have been tundra, Ohio and Pennsylvania. Um, sea levels globally, for example, were about 400 feet lower. Well, you drop sea, sea levels worldwide by 400 feet and you've exposed most of the, the planet's continental shelves. And, um, you know, so then when you end the Ice Age, you are essentially releasing all of that seawater that has been locked up for millennia in the ice sheet and it flows back into the oceans and raises sea levels and, and drowns the, the continental shelves. So you go through this transition where you have it's estimated that around 7 million square miles of land was locked up under ice, and this is both in North America and Northwestern Europe, as well as enlarged ice caps on Greenland. So what happened with the end of the Ice Age is the ice melted away, and it freed up 7 million square miles of land, surface, real estate, and, but at the same time it drowned a, a comparable amount. What's interesting, though, that if you found yourself suddenly transported back uh, 14, 15,000 years ago, uh, and, and of course people did live then, uh, we lived much longer than that, you know, we lived many tens of thousands of years ago, we modern humans, but one of the, one of the, the prime habitable areas of the planet would have been, you know, on the coastlines of, of the world, and also at the mouths of rivers, and of course, you know, those areas are all now under three to 400 feet of water. So I, I, I confidently make the prediction that many of our advances in archaeology are going to come from marine archaeology and the discovery, to whatever extent these remains still exist, of uh, human habitation along uh, ancient coastlines going back 14, 15, maybe 20,000 years ago and longer. So the, so was that the last great destruction, do you think, the, the end of the last Ice Age? Well, I think it's the end of the last Ice Age. If we... If we, if, if as our barometer of change, if we look at species loss, which is basically a function of habitat loss, there was a great extinction, a mass extinction of species that took place at the end of the last ice age, usually referred to as uh, the, the mega mammals. Mm -hmm. and this includes, you know, the woolly mammoths and the mastodons and the giant ground sloths, the saber-toothed cats, the giant beavers, the cave bears. I mean, literally, there was about depending on how you divide them up, about 120 to 130 species of large mammal that went extinct during, basically during this age of Leo time, between about 10,800 and 13,000 years ago. Now, if you do a census of modern animals, and when we, we define a mega mammal as a, as a mammal that weighs more than about uh, 40 kilograms, which is about 100 pounds. So if we were to do a census of, of all the modern day mammals that, that weigh over 100 pounds, there are about 130 to 140 species globally, worldwide. And this is, of course, all of the familiar ones that we know, you know, the lions and the tigers and the bears and the moose and the, the deer and the wolves and, and the caribou and all of these. Sum them all up, we've got about, let's say, roughly 130 species. Okay, well, that's about the same number that went extinct globally 13,000 years ago. And if we push the clock back to 15,000 years ago, we see that the number of species of large mammals was almost double what it now is. So if we were going to eliminate an equivalent number of species from the planet today, as, as we lost 13,000 years ago, we basically wouldn't have any animals left over 100 pounds in body weight. So that kind of gives you an idea of the severity of it. 
In order to find an equivalent extinction event, we have to go back to what's called the Hemphillian event, which actually dates to about five million years ago. So interestingly, this event that occurred between, say, around 12 to 13,000 years ago, I think in terms of species loss, and again, that being a function of habitat loss, um, has been the most severe in, in five million years. Now, there have been destruction since then. I think we can, I think the evidence is emerging that there have been some pretty extraordinary destructions, even within what's called the Holocene, which is the interglacial epoch that we're in now. The glacial epoch is usually called the Pleistocene, and most of the dates given for the Pleistocene uh, place it at beginning around 2.6 million years ago, right? 2,600,000 years ago. Um, and what, what, uh, defines the Pleistocene in contrast to the previous epoch, the Pliocene, is this onset of this cyclical swinging back and forth of the planet between glacial and interglacial ages. And some estimates have placed the, the number of oscillations up to, to 30 or 40 in the last two and a half million years. That maybe 40 times the planet has shifted into a glacial age and shifted back out again. The previous Pliocene age was basically marked by a long period of stability and warmth and high sea levels without this oscillating climate. So there was something that changed, something that affected a very um, fundamental change in the way the planet operates around two and a half million years ago. And my suspicion would be that, that whatever it was, it was extraterrestrial, uh, that, it was, that what we're seeing in, in Earth is a response to a change in the extraterrestrial environment. So we come through two and a half million years of these oscillating glacial interglacial ages, and now we're in what's called the Holocene, the modern age, which is an interglacial age or interglacial epoch, and it's you know no more than nine or ten thousand years long. As the record is now being reconstructed of the last, mm, let's say, half a million years, going back where we can reconstruct it with with a high degree of accuracy, based upon mostly based upon ice cores extracted from Greenland and Antarctica but also from, from sea, uh, you know, uh, drill cores taken from the sea bottom, from uh, stalactites in caves, um, you know, from palynological studies, which is the studies of pollen. I mean, many different kinds of things by which we can uh, map out the changes in vegetational patterns as a response to climate change and so on. What we discover is, is in its own way a bit sobering, and that is the periods of interglacial warmth and relatively relative climate stability have been very short duration. In fact, it, you could say uh, that the current Holocene, the one we're in now, out of the last, at least based on the Greenland ice cores, which gives us a, a high uh, degree of, of resolution back to about 250,000 years, the Holocene, the present uh, period of, of relative warmth and stable climate, is the longest period equivalent to that of the last quarter million years. No, the, you know, in other words, there's been no period that has lasted typically longer than six or 8,000 years before catastrophe has hmm. entered the scene. And we've already exceeded that by a couple of millennium. So from that standpoint, maybe we shouldn't take things for granted. <laughs> it's very, very true. All right, I got to take a quick break here. We'll be back in uh, 45 seconds with Randall Carlson. Okay. The opinions expressed by the host and guests on Where Did the Road Go are their own and do not represent those of WVBR or its management. 
Join us on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com where you can send us questions for our live guests via email or the live chat room. You can also check out our upcoming schedule, blog, link section, book reviews, videos, and links to our Twitter, Facebook, iTunes, and much more. That's wheredidtheroadgo.com. And this week we have Randall Carlson, and we've been talking about the cycles of catastrophe. And uh, are you familiar with Robert Schock's latest work? Uh, yes, I am. I'm definitely familiar with that. I know Robert fairly well. What, what do you think of his uh, theories on the sun ending the last ice age? Uh, well, I would, I would have a discussion with him about that. I, I, you know, I, it's, it's a very interesting possibility, and I think it's plausible. Um, in, if you read his book, you see that at the end he does sort of leave the door open, though, to uh, an impact or a series of impact events, which is the, the, the explanation I think I would be more inclined to um, for a number of reasons. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I have a great deal of respect for Robert's work, and, I, and I've read his book with great interest and in would actually like to reread it um, and follow up some of, his, some of his sources, which I haven't had a chance to do yet. I certainly think that the mechanism that he invokes is, is a plausible mechanism, and it's probably been one of the one of the factors uh, as we go. I think probably you know we we could perhaps look at. Um, in fact, interestingly, there are some arcane traditions that would seem to imply that the that there are significant enough solar changes to invoke uh, responses here in the terrestrial environment. Um, but also, uh, clearly, I think impacts of things from space is is to me is the dominant one right now um, but well, certainly also large volcanic events as well um, certainly can change have, have the capacity to dramatically change the climate now now I have heard you talk about how fast the ice caps melted in the and uh, you I believe said that they melted faster than we can actually explain Ex yes that's true um, back in the early 70s uh, you see initially there was a lot of assumptions made back let, let's say pre-radiocarbon dating um, as to the duration of, of ice sheets and how long it takes them to form, how long it takes them to melt. Um, you know, at the, birthing, at the birth of modern Earth science, essentially coincided with the end of what's called the Little Ice Age. And during the Little Ice Age, um, you know, glaciers globally expanded to their greatest extent in 10,000 years. A lot of people don't know that. So it's important, I always try to, you know, when we start talking about modern climate change, I think it's important we place that into context that when we talk about, you know, um, the climate having, you know, how much it's warmed in the last 150 years, we have to realize that we were coming out of a three to 400 year cold spell that was the coldest the climate, the planet has been in 10,000 years. So... You know, glaciers worldwide grew to their greatest extent since the end of the Great Ice Age. In any case, um, with the advent of, of modern geological science, you had observers out, essentially, who could see the shrinking of the ice caps that had grown throughout the course of the Little Ice Age. And based upon rates of recession um, that they had actually observed, uh, uh, let, let me digress for one second. It's, it's the what they observed through the course of the Little Ice Age and the effects that they saw when the glaciers, for example, grew down out of the Alps into the Jura Valley. They created a whole suite of geomorphological features, um, creating moraines, creating eskers, uh, erratic boulders, 
when the ice receded, it left this glacially sculpted terrain in its wake that these astute observers could see firsthand. But what they saw was that that these features were a smaller scale uh, of these much larger features that they had also been observing that they weren't able to explain except perhaps by recourse to the Noachian deluge, Noah's flood. Well, in any case, based upon the rates of recession of the ice, they, of the little ice age, they extrapolated to the assumed rates of recession for the great ice age. And, you know, once they became aware of the full extent of, of how, how vast these ice sheets were back 14, 15 to 20,000 years ago, um, through, through, it took a generation or two to, to come to this awareness of the full extent of the, of the ice, primarily due to the work of Louis Agassiz, who was considered the godfather of, of glaciology. But um, they then sort of extrapolated and, and assumed that you had, you know, perhaps 30, 40, 50,000 years or, or more, maybe 100,000 years for the planet to go shift into an ice age and shift gears to come out of an ice age. And this is the idea that pretty much prevailed in all of the literature and all of the models up until the 1960s. What changed was the invention of radiocarbon dating. And as radiocarbon dates began to accumulate, it became apparent that the whole process had happened much quicker than anybody had previously imagined. So that, for example, um, dates started showing up of forests growing in Canada where the ice sheet was, for example, 40,000 years ago. Well, if 40,000 years ago there were forests growing across central Canada, then there obviously wasn't ice there. So right there, that constrained the window in which the Ice Age event could play out. Um, but So by the early 1970s, enough radiocarbon dates were in hand and enough... Um, evidence had come that, that contradicted these, these long, slow, drawn-out models, that they held a series of um, conferences, I think, between 1973 and 1975, where they examined the radiocarbon dating and looked at the uh, rates at which the ice had disappeared. And they realized that, at say, roughly 14,000 years ago, the, the, the whole ice complex was, for the most part, still intact. By 8,000 years ago to 9,000 years ago, it was gone. So the, the window to get rid of this, the ice contracted like by an order of magnitude. So here now you've got, you're going from tens of thousands of years to melt away the ice to perhaps 5,000 years. Well, this rate created a problem, see, because number one, you have to have heat in order to melt ice. And so they did some calculations uh, as to the available heat, for example, in Canada today. And Canada today has very cold winters, doesn't it? And as does Ithaca, New York. And you know, you get, I'm from Minnesota. <laughs> so I remember well shoveling my driveway as a kid growing up. And I think that's one reason I'm in Georgia at the moment. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, now, nevertheless, come spring, it all melts and goes away, right? It doesn't form glacial ice and eventually become a mile thick, right? right? Well, you have to literally think of it this way. The onset of an ice age, basically, you have, you have the onset of winter, but then winter doesn't go away for 10,000 or 15,000 years. And then finally, 15,000 years later, you have spring. Well, when the great spring, the great melting came, 
this was, you know, again, 10 to 12,000 years ago is where the, the concentration of the melting occurred. So they did these calculations, which essentially um, were trying to determine uh, how much heat energy would be necessary to melt the ice that fast. And when they calculated the available heat energy in Canada today, the, the number that they came up with was something on the order of 30,000 years to melt the ice. Because first of all, you know, it's going to melt for those few months during the summer, but then winter's going to come, it's going to cease melting, and presumably even accumulate some, you know. Um, then summer will come and it's going to melt some more, but the melting will be somewhat greater than the, the accumulation, and eventually the ice would be gone, right? Well, assuming a process like that, which is, is extrapolated from what we see going on today, it, it just didn't work. Uh, you know, it was going to require, again, I, I forgot the exact number, but, you know, twenty five to 30,000 years. Maybe it was even longer than that. <clears throat> well, then they said, well, geez, well, how, where is the greatest heat energy available on the planet today? And, and basically it was tropical oceans. So then they, they redid their models and with the idea that, uh, well, let's look at it from the standpoint of the amount of heat energy available at tropical oceans. And what they realized was even at tropical oceans, it was still going to take nearly 20,000 years to melt the ice. <laughs> so here you've got this conundrum now, and, 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 and essentially they called it the energy paradox. This was the, the term they used for it in the literature. They talked about the energy paradox, and they said, well, there's obviously an error in our data somewhere. So we're going to put it on the shelf, and we'll get back to it when we have more information. And basically, they haven't gotten back to it. <laughs> and if, if anything has happened in the interim since, since the early to mid-'70s, it's that we've further constrained the, the window of which, during which the ice melted. In fact, what the Greenland ice cores seem to show now is that there were two, uh, two things. There was the Greenland ice cores show that there were two extreme warming events, all right? Also, studies of sea level rise show that there were two, what they call CREs. CRE stands for catastrophic rise events. And there were apparently two of these extreme pulses of meltwater influx to the oceans, the global oceans, which they term catastrophic rise events. It appears that these two thermal events recorded in Greenland ice cores correspond with the CREs or catastrophic rise events. So, in a sense, you had a large bulk of the ice melting over an extremely short period of time. Um, and if we look at the geomorphic effects of that, um, I think that it's borne out that we have just extreme melting um, on a scale that's really almost impossible to, to visualize. I've spent the last 20 years trying to construct scenarios in my, my own mind, uh, you know, so I've traveled with some of my friends and colleagues over most of North America looking at the consequences of this catastrophic melting and essentially have traced it uh, along the southern margin of the ice sheet from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. Uh, that's what brought me up to your area back in 2001 and looking at the origin of the Finger Lakes, um, which I'm sure, you know, you see you're at the southern end of Lake Cayuga, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, well... <clears throat> Have you ever thought about the origin of that beautiful... Well, well, I think the official story is that it was carved out by glaciers and the, the remaining ice melted in place forming the lakes where there were gorges, where the biggest gorges were. 
Well, that's the official story, but the official story doesn't really hold up basically for the last 20 years. Um, there was work done in the in the uh, late 80s and early 90s um, where they did the first um, seismic reflection profiles of the lakes, um, both, uh, basically all of the lakes, but the two most particular that I think they focused on was Cayuga and Seneca because they're the biggest lakes. Right. They, they correlated the seismic reflection profiles with uh, drill cores that were taken from the bottom. What they discovered, like in the case of uh, Lake Seneca, the bottom, the bedrock, the bottom of the lake itself is sediment. But the, the, you take the sediment out, there's 900 feet of sediment. And when you take the sediment out, the bedrock trough that, is, that the lake is in is actually 1,000 feet below sea level. Hmm. And then there's 900 feet of sediment. Well, the thing that shocked the geologist working on this was that with so much sediment, they assume that if it had been created over a long period of time, that as you went down core, you would find that the sediment got progressively older, and it would probably be layered, you know, sort of in a varve-like fashion, varves being the, you know, whenever you have a, a lake that's fed by glaciers, um, you, you get these annual layers that are very distinct and easy to recognize. Well, when they took the, the drill core samples and looked at them, they saw essentially that that the sediment filling the bottoms of those lakes is massive. It's not layered. It's not set. It's not bedded. It's massive, and it was all younger than fourteen thousand years. Hmm. So, right there, the old model of a gradualistic formation for those lakes doesn't work because either you had an event where if there was pre if if the tr bedrock troughs were there when the melting came, they would have f flushed out anything that was there. Although what I'm arguing is that the, uh, the, the gorges, the channels themselves were created by subglacial, highly pressurized subglacial floods that spewed out and actually spewed out and, and, and inundated the valleys to the south of the lakes. And you actually find this, the, the valleys to the south of the lakes just filled with water-laid sediment. And in fact, if you go through the the mountains, the, the hills in the south there, south of the of the valleys, what you can actually find is on the southern side of the mountains, you'll find huge erosional lands, landslides and effects, uh, giant boulder fields and so forth that were, are consistent with uh, water-laid sediment, not glacial-laid sediment. Now, when I had gone and visited the, the Finger Lakes, I had already been out west visiting very similar features out west. Uh, but they're called coulees, and there's one out there called Grand Coulee, for example. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Grand Coulee Dam on the Columbia River. Mm -hmm. It's the largest concrete structure in North America, the Grand Coulee Dam. Well, if you look at Grand Coulee, what you see is it's essentially, a, it's, there's a, there's a artificial lake in there now because they built a dam in it, and they're using it as a reservoir. But if you look on Google Earth, and you look at Grand Coulee, and then you look at Lake Seneca, you will see that essentially they're identical. Huh. Um, there's two differences, though. In Grand Coulee, you've got erosion in basalt bedrock, and you've got a semi-arid climate with no more than about 15 inches of rainfall per year. In, in uh, western New York, where you are, you've primarily got Devonian shales and roughly, I think, 50 to 60 inches of precipitation a year, which, of course, creates lots of vegetation and... Given the topography, the fact that you see the the flow 
that created the Finger Lakes was to the south, although now the Finger Lakes drain to the north into Lake Ontario. But it's acknowledged by all geologists that now look at it that Grand Coulee was created by giant catastrophic floods, part of what's known as the Missoula floods. I don't know if you ever heard of the Missoula floods. No. Okay, the Missoula floods are generally considered to be the largest documented freshwater flows known in the history of the Earth. <clears throat> and they occurred out in the Pacific Northwest, again, around 12 to 13, maybe 14,000 years ago, right in that same window that we're talking about. Um, and we're talking about flows that are so extraordinary that um, it's difficult to even visualize. And I've taken numerous tours out there to because people can, you cannot talk about it or even show photos or slides and get it. You have to actually go to the landscapes themselves to, to get the impression of the scale of these events that we're talking about. But in the case of Grand Coulee, the water flow that was involved in carving it out was about 350 million cubic feet per second. Well, how much is that? Well, you know, the, the, the largest discharge of any river in North America is the Mississippi River, which, you know, dumps into the, into the Gulf of Mexico. Its average annual discharge, I think, is around 250,000 cubic feet per second. In its greatest known historical floods, it topped out at just over 1 million cubic feet per second. Mm. Well, Grand Coulee was carved by a flow of 350 million cubic feet per second. So think about the Mississippi River and its largest historical flood. Multiply that flow by 350, and now you've got the flow. Now, of course, the difference, another important difference is when we look at a flood like the Mississippi, it's a low gradient flood. So the water is moving relatively sluggish, you know, maybe five to eight miles an hour. When we look at the floods out of the Pacific Northwest, what we see is water moving at 50 or 60 miles an hour. And so it, it's, its force is extreme. And so you can, it's, it's, I don't think you'd find a geologist that would declare that you required much more than a couple of weeks to cut Grand Coulee. Grand Coulee is varies, it's about 52 miles long. It varies between one and uh, five miles wide, and it's about a thousand feet deep. Now you picture an event that can carve out a canyon a thousand feet deep, 50 miles long, in a matter of days or a few weeks, and you start getting the idea of the, the scale of, of these phenomena. Wow. Yeah. Now, again, what I'm going to suggest to you is check this out. Go to go to uh, Google Earth. Beautiful, great tool for anybody doing this kind of research. Look at the images of the Finger Lakes, and then look at Grand Coulee, and and note the similarities between the two. I'm arguing that the Finger Lakes, this the, with this the evidence of the seismic profiles, the deep erosion, the fact that there has so much sediment in it. The fact that the sediment south of the Finger Lakes is clearly water laid, all of this suggests that you had. Oh, well, and there's one more former, uh, further piece of evidence, and that is <clears throat> that at the, from the northern end of the lakes up to Lake Ontario, you have one of the spectacular drumlin fields of the of the planet. And you, you know what a drumlin is? No. A drumlin is a. The old model is is that a drumlin, in some uncertain way, was was shaped by glaciers grinding over the landscape. But if you look at a drumlin from the air, essentially it's it's an earth form that looks like an inverted boat hull. And there's a, a team of scientists primarily out of Canada, uh, headed by John Shaw and some of his, Bruce Rains and a number of others, 
that began back in the 1980s reinterpreting drumlins and saying, wait a second, there's been all of this arguing and discussion and debate as to how glaciers grinding over the landscape would create these elongated, elegant forms that look like inverted bow towels. They weren't created by glaciers at all. They were created by water flow. Water flowing under tremendous pressure beneath the glaciers. Well, this has been a very controversial idea because, you know, even in science, ideas become entrenched. You get dogmas. People who challenge the dogmas are frequently considered to be heretics. John Shaw is considered to be somewhat of a heretic by proposing that, that these drumlins are actually proposed by hydraulic means rather than glaciers. His primary criticism has come from those who said, well, um, the amount of the volume of water that you require um, couldn't exist as a reservoir beneath the ice. Uh, for example, one of the uh, great floods that he documented, he calls the Livingstone Lake event, which essentially gushed out of central Canada, uh, the area of Manitoba and Ontario, gushed down over what is now the Missouri River Valley and flowed would have flowed down the Mississippi. And he estimated the total volume of that flood at 84,000 cubic kilometers. Now that's just an inconceivable amount of water. His critics said, there's no way that you could have that volume of water. See, he didn't provide an explanation for the source of this water. He just said, well, clearly in the laboratory models and so forth that he and his colleagues did, they were able to reproduce drumlin forms um, by hydraulic means, by essentially by showing that water flowing under pressure could actually shape the, the material of the ground into these inverted boat hull shapes. And um, his critics again said, well, the scale of this thing that you're talking about is so great that it would require a reservoir of water that would be impossible to, to retain under the ice. And he never has really had a suitable answer for that. Of course, from where I'm coming from, and my explanation is that he never had a reservoir because what we're seeing is the evidence of an instantaneous melting on a large scale, and which allowed water to uh, reach the base of, of a mile to two mile thick ice sheet uh, and then flow under the ice under tremendous pressure until it basically burst out in the form of an outburst flood along the southern margins. And so you can basically track these outburst floods all the way across the whole southern margin. You can go to the Midwestern states from eastern Montana, the North, North and South Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, coming all the way across Finger Lakes being a spectacular example up in, in your uh, area. All the way along the southern margin, you find what could be uh, interpreted as gigantic uh, meltwater floods, sometimes coming what's called supraglacially, meaning off the surface of the glacier, but all other times subglacially coming from under the glaciers. And what the and, and while I have not yet visited it, the the evidence also is now showing up in the Yukon River and the Mackenzie River and some rivers flowing into the Arctic Ocean, that at the same time these tremendous meltwater floods were coming off the southern margin of the ice sheet, they're also coming off the northern margin of the ice sheet. And there, you're going to have a guest on, I think, next week, Rand Flemath. Yes, yes, indeed. Okay, he talks a lot about pole shifts. I have a different take on pole shifts than his model. but okay. I was actually not, just going to ask you about that. Uh, pole shifts? Yes. Well, he goes back to the work of Charles Hapgood, which I find Charles Hapgood was an extremely important player in, in 
the revival of catastrophism. <clears throat> and he wrote a couple of books, and Flemath, I think, is based a lot of his work on that of, um, of Charles Hapgood. Charles Hapgood basically uh, postulated the idea that the catastrophes were provoked by a shift of the Earth's crust relative to its mantle, probably sliding over the asthenosphere. I looked into that idea, and, and actually in about 1980 or 81, I procured Charles Hapgood's revision of his Earth-shifting crust called Path of the Pole, and I set out as one of my goals for my free time to, to read every reference that he had, and it was over 400 of them. And I think I managed to read about most of them, most of them. Um, over the course of the years, I've shifted my thinking into believing that, that the crustal shifts have taken place, but not to the extent that Hapgood postulated, and that they weren't a trigger of the change, but were a response to the change. Hmm. And, and you see, that makes sense from what you would call a rheological standpoint, which is the study of the distribution of mass within the Earth. If you have a gigantic ice sheet piled up on the continent, it depresses the continent um, in what's called isostatic depression. And in the case of the uh, Great North American Ice Sheet, it depressed regions of Canada, sometimes perhaps up to 1,500 feet or more. In fact, I have in my slideshow, I have aerial photographs of the shorelines around Hudson Bay, and you can see that there are shorelines that have been steadily coming up since the ice has been removed. <laughs> this, this term isostasy refers to vertical changes in the Earth's crust. So when you have a, gl a glacier forming, it depresses the crust. Imagine yourself sitting on a nice big cushy chair. You sit down and your, your ass on the chair creates isostatic depression. Okay, when you get up, that's isostatic uh, compensation. So when you get up, the, the cushion springs back to assume its former shape. And, and there's, so, they're still springing back, aren't they? They're still springing back, yes. And of course, at a much slower rate. But you see, here's the thing. Because the Earth is oblate, um, there's, a, there's a delicate balance between um, where, say, a given rock mass is on the surface of the Earth and its, its latitude and the speed at which it's, it's rotating. Now, if you depress part of the Earth's crust by 1,500 feet, it's no longer at the latitude that would be consistent um, with, that, with that elevation. Likewise, if you raise the land 1,500 feet, it has to compensate somehow. Well, if you raise the land 1,500 feet, think of it this way, it's now out of sync it, because you probably know that the Earth is about 26 miles bigger in diameter through the equator than it is through the pole. Right. In round numbers, it's about 7,900 miles through the polar axis and about 7,926 through the equatorial axis. Well, <clears throat> so you've got this distribution of mass that's based upon its latitudinal uh, difference from the equator. So... If you are raising a section of land by 1,500 feet, perhaps 2,000 feet, it's no longer at the latitude where it would normally be in balance with the rest of the Earth's mass. So essentially, what I would argue is that once you begin that isostatic adjustment where the land begins raising up again, it's going to have a tendency to want to migrate towards the latitude at which that distance from the its center of mass would put it in equilibrium. Mm. You see, so 
and vice versa. And then bear in mind, too, that as you're melting all of this ice and releasing this tremendous, just hundreds of trillions of tons of weight off of Canada, you're dumping a large amount of that back into the ocean basins. Uh, and so the ocean basins are going to have to compensate as well. So as the land is coming up, the ocean basin floor is going to have to sink. And when you factor that in, along with the 400-foot change in sea level, I think that the Mid-Atlantic Ridge is kind of a hinge point. You got That's one of the thinnest places on, on the crust of the Earth is the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. There is empirical evidence suggesting that there was an enormous subsidence of the Earth's crust centered along the Mid-Atlantic Ridge uh, that was a consequence of the loading that took place with the melting of the ice and the, the replacement of the ocean water by coming up 400 feet. There was a, a, a commensurate dropping of the ocean floor huh. in an attempt to attain equilibrium. So I tend to look for my Atlantis idea basically in you know, sort of in effect where Plato said it was, which was west of the, the Straits of Gibraltar. And we find that there actually is a sunken plateau to the west of the Straits of Gibraltar called the Azores Plateau. And there's empirical evidence along the Azores Plateau that it, that it subsided a great deal at the end of the last ice age. And right now the, there are huge mountains on the Azores Plateau, and what are now the Azores Islands are only the, uh, the tips of those mountains. But think about this. If you drop sea level 400 feet, you're going to double the size of these islands. If you also raise the sea level floor by perhaps a thousand or a couple of thousand feet, many of these islands are actually going to join into a single landmass. And if you also look at during the Ice Age, the, the route of the, uh, the, um, the Gulf Stream, it basically just uh, turned south uh, about five degrees, seven degrees uh, further south than it now does. So it never really actually reached the British Isles. It turned south just north of the um, Azores Plateau. So during the Ice Age, regardless of where Atlantis may or may not have been or whether it really existed, during the Ice Age, one of the prime habitable places on the planet would have, would have been some of those mid-Atlantic islands, which were essentially kept relatively warm and tropical by the Gulf Stream. Interesting, but at, 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 his idea of uh, Antarctica being the home of Atlantis is also because it, Antarctica was ice-free during the last ice age, wasn't it? Well, the ice in Antarctica has been extremely dynamic, and I think that there were large sections of it that that were um, probably ice-free. You know, I think that idea is controversial. I mean, it goes back to to Hapgood. I haven't looked at the latest research, but I think most of the research suggests that the that the uh, East Antarctic ice cap has been more or less intact for at least several hundred thousand years, although the margins of it have fluctuated. I certainly would concur that I think that you know there are many surprises that await us um, as we learn more about Ant Antarctica. Um, you know, some of the ideas about Antarctica being ice-free come from the, some of the medieval Portland maps. Right, right. It seemed to show um, regions of, of the uh, uh, Antarctica that were ice-free. And I think that that's definitely plausible. Um, you know, there was a period called the Hypsothermal. Um, immediately on the heels of the ice, the end of the Ice Age, uh, there was a period called the uh, uh, Hypsothermal, it was also called the Climatic Optimum. Um, 
which lasted roughly from about 7,000 to about 9,000 years. All the evidence in hand now suggests that during that climatic optimum, uh, sea levels were higher than now, climate was uh, substantially warmer than now, and it's very possible that during that climatic optimum, um, that large regions of, that, that the ice re receded considerably in certain portions of Antarctica, hmm. leaving um, portions that are now, um, you know, because when we, I mentioned earlier the Little Ice Age. Well, it appears now that the Little Ice Age was a global cooling. A global cooling like that would probably cause an expansion of the Antarctic ice sheet right. compared to where it was during the hypsothermal. But now the hypsothermal was the, or climatic optimum, was the climate uh, period from, like I said, from about seven to about 9,000 years ago. This would have been the period that has often been referred to as the period of the goddess because this is the dating when so many of these goddess effigies show up. Mm -hmm. um, it was apparently an interesting time because, you know, come post Ice Age, it was almost as if the birth of the modern age was so traumatic that then there was a period of two or 3,000 years of very benign climate. That essentially, this would have been the period of climate where, um, you know, the, the time during Earth history when it would have been necessary to be fruitful and multiply. Right. Because my suspicion is that the human population most likely crashed just like the rest of the mega mammals. Yeah, yeah. And I always, always wondered if, if the, the texts like that were made almost as a survival guide for the species. If the what? If, if texts like the, the Old Testament and stuff were written oh, as a I, survival guide almost. You know, I think that's a, I think that's a great way to put it. I, that's, that would be my take on it, for sure. I think, and that's one of the reasons why it was considered so important to preserve some of these ancient writings and why, for example, so much of this kind of information was encoded in the form of architecture because where, you know, papyrus or uh, paper isn't going to last, architect stone, architectural stonework is going to be much more durable. Right. And so I think by encoding this symbolism into the architectural monuments and, and so forth, um, yeah, I totally, I think that's a, a great way to put it. Okay, um, we're almost out of time. I do have a couple other quick questions for you. Sure. Um, first of all, you're on WVBR-FM Ithaca. The last exit for the Lost is coming up next in about five or ten minutes. Um, one of the things, you, you have a DVD uh, lecture out, a two-DVD, four-hour lecture. Yes, we, um, go we on. do. And, and it, it covers a lot of this material we've been talking about. And it's, with, it does, and it seems like it barely scratches the surface at the same time. Oh, that's, yeah, that's true. It, it barely <laughs> scratches the surface. Um, I have, I have, well, I have 40 years of accumulated research uh, into all of this kind of stuff. I have literally, I, I probably 10,000 or 12,000 slides of features and things that I've taken over the years. But what you got was the first rough copy, the rough draft, if you will, the, the, the um, editor's copy. Mm. Now we're coming out with the the upgrade, the improved version, and that's going to be available very soon, uh, probably within the next couple of weeks. Oh, um, okay. And so um, we're pretty pleased with that. Cameron and I have been working through that. Um, we were actually in different states during the first part of the, the creation of it, and, and so I was not available. Now we've been going through slide by slide and getting everything real tight and putting in new graphics and new imagery and and a lot of this stuff that we've been talking about, you know, uh, would become, uh, is in there. So, you know, yes. I have graphs and charts and photographs. I've taken photographs from the ground. I've got aerial photography that I've done. We've gathered together NASA photography so that you can get multiple perspectives on some of these things that we're talking about. 
Um, I think it's going to be a pretty rich source of information for anybody who finds this kind of subject matter fascinating. And, and I have to say, even as a, as a rough draft, the quality of it is, is fantastic. I've seen a lot of lectures that have been taped, and they don't get good audio sometimes. And they, it, what you guys put together, even as a rough draft, is very high quality. Well, wait till you see the, 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 the improved version. It, it, yeah, it's going to be great. And then, awesome. You know, we've got... Um, we're also good for those who are interested in the sacred geometry end of it. We're going to be doing a series of online classes coming up where we basically take people through starting at the very most rudimentary level and taking them through the whole process, uh, sort of in the same uh, format as in the ancient Platonic Academy or in the Pythagorean lodges. Um, mm -hmm. Hands on, and it'll be instruction and there'll be guided uh, exercises and so forth. And then, of course, we're also always adding new material to the website itself. And there will be a link on the Sacred Geometry website to another website called cosmographicresearch.org, which you can go to, which has a lot of information and photographs uh, regarding the geological and astronomical stuff we've been talking about tonight. Nice. And, of course, that's all free. And, and that is, what's the website? Cosmographic Research. They're, okay, what's what's your website? So people. Well, that that's it. Cosmographic Research. Oh, okay. What's and the, then, the sacred? And then SacredGeometryInternational.com. Okay, that was the one I was looking for. Yeah, and those links are on there, yes. right on the homepage to the others. And then I, there should be a link to my building website as well. Okay, and one of the things you talked about, one of the questions I had for you. Uh, one of the things you talk about in that lecture is you said that uh, the, the pyramids could potentially be older than they, they believe? Well, yes. I, perhaps the Great Pyramid is. And I, and I, I keep open about that. I'm, I'm convinced by Robert Schock and John Anthony West's research that the Sphinx is much older right. than conventional chronologies. When I visited there in 2010, I uh, for my, was able to see for myself and, and came away completely convinced that that was the case. Um, and, and, in fact, I think Robert, in a lot of his public pronouncements, is very is overly conservative in his estimates as to the date of the Sphinx. I, to me, I think it has based on the amount of erosion uh, that we've seen on, not so much on the Sphinx because you know they're doing these these uh, reconstructions. They're doing the, um, you know, they're refacing the Sphinx, which right. to me is basically just covering up the the real message in the Sphinx. But, but to our uh, advantage, the 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 quarry out of which the the blocks were removed, the, the quarry walls are still there, and they retain the effects of the erosion, which to me has all the earmarks of, of severe water erosion. It's consistent with evidence that there was also, during the same window of time at the end of the last ice age, extraordinary floods coming down the Nile. Uh, many of the great wadis that open onto the Nile, which are now dry, show evidence of gigantic hydrologic events. Um, gigantic boulder fans at the mouths of the wadis that are only consistent with huge floods. And I think that basically the Sphinx had to have already been there when the flooding occurred in Egypt. And the flooding has been well dated now to, you know, between twelve and 13,000 years. Right. And I think that that sets a minimum age for the Sphinx. Um, I, I find these attempts on the part of conventional Egyptologists to dismiss or ignore the geological evidence to be pretty weak, actually. Yeah. Uh, well, what, what makes you think the pyramid might be older? Well, only, see, part of it, well, there's no hard evidence on that. What we got, okay. though, it's a lot of Arabic legends about um, pre-flood construction. Um, okay. 
Surus was named, for example, in one of the Arabic legends. There was a king, Surus, who had a dream, a premonition that there was going to be a great flood. So he built the pyramid as a repository of, of knowledge. Hmm. And, of course, you know that the casing stones have, for the most part, been all stripped off. Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask about that, too. And, you know, when you, when you look at the legends and some of the early accounts, they were, I think they were stripped off in the 1100s. Um, and there was an earthquake in, in northern Egypt that flattened a lot of the buildings in Cairo. And up until that time, there had been efforts to actually to try to penetrate the pyramid without success. And because of the fact that the casing stones is this very high-grade, very dense limestone, and apparently the joinery was so tight and so close that there was nowhere that one could even get anything in there to try to lever a stone out. <laughs> so nature came along and did the job for him by this tremendous earthquake. Apparently, there was some cracks that opened up in the casing stones that allowed them to then, and then at the same time, flattened all the buildings in Cairo. So they, at that time, began to systematically strip the casing stones, in which, in what I consider the largest act of vandalism in history. Um, but you know, when you refer to the um, to the Arabic legends and some of the early travelers' accounts, it says that the entire outside of the the, the pyramid was covered in inscriptions and symbolism. Yeah. So I find that to be a very intriguing idea. Some of those stones must be in various mosques throughout the city of Cairo. I would have no idea where. But there are also legends, and I can't recall the source of these now because it's been a number of years, that would suggest that travelers, that, that certain guides pointed out water lines up on the Sphinx, I mean, the, on the pyramid, that they said was a remnant of the floods. Hmm. So if that was the case, you know, that's that's purely conjectural. It's not right, empirical right. evidence. But, you know, I tend to think, I t tend to concur with the conventional chronologies towards the rest of the Giza Plateau. I definitely believe that the Sphinx is much older, and I hold open the possibility that the pyramid also, the Great Pyramid of Khufu was also much older. Nice. All right. Well, we got to wrap this up. Um, I highly recommend oh, people. I was just getting started. I know, I know. I'm pretty, <laughs> sure, I'm pretty sure we could take the next six hours very easily. <laughs> um, but we'll just have you back on. How's that? Sounds great to me. It's been fun. All right, and maybe sometime we can have you live if you come back to Ithaca at some point. Yeah, I'd love to do that because I've been meaning to get back because there's a lot of things I was not able to see and document when I was up there. Uh, and I would love to get back. I love the area. Those gorges, to me, are just enchanted. I, I imagine you've been in some of them. Oh, yeah, a lot of them. Yeah, a lot of them. And, I, and we could actually go together, and I could begin pointing out some of the things to you that, that is unequivocal evidence for catastrophic flood flows. Well, that would be fantastic. And yeah, so you can see yourself firsthand. And uh, your website one more time? Uh, SacredGeometryInternational.com. Okay. And CosmographicResearch.org. All right, and uh, Last Exit for the Lost is up next. Next week, as we uh, mentioned a few minutes ago, we got Rand Flemath on the show. And, uh, yeah, www.wheredtheroadgo.com for uh, everything associated with this show. And we're going to have some Psyche Corporation, as always, take us out. Thanks again, Randall. Well, thank you, Soraya, for having me on. Come in. Understand the numbers pouring over your connection. Singing, soaking into our transmission. Twenty-one, thirty-four, fifty-five, eighty-nine, one hundred and forty-four. Whence came this dream?